This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hello, everyone. My name is Brian Jones. I'm the Associate Director of Education at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture, and I am thrilled to welcome you to this event, launching a new book, Black Lives Matter at School, an uprising for educational justice, published by Haymarket Books. I'm grateful to the Schomburg Center for co-sponsoring this event and to Haymarket Books for hosting it. Now, attempting to capture many different parts of this new nationwide grassroots movement that's spreading among parents, teachers, and students, this book, Black Lives Matter at School, has some 31 contributors. This is a leaderful movement, and two of them are with us tonight the co-editors of the book, Denisha Jones and Jesse Hagopian. But certainly this book launch is going to have to be the first of many events. So look out for future announcements and opportunities to hear directly from more of the contributors to this book. And I am one of the contributors to this book. Um, although tonight I'll be playing more the role of moderator, I would like to share briefly something I wrote in a chapter on historical perspectives. In 400 years on this land, Black people have waged an uninterrupted battle for education. The equally persistent and ongoing resistance to their demands for reform should give us all pause. To get some small measure of access, they've had to draw petitions and make demands of existing institutions. At the same time, they've developed and built their own resources and institutions, creating their own curricular materials and even their own schools. The Black Lives Matter at School movement shares these aims. It calls upon you, the reader of this chapter, to join in demanding more from our schools and applying pressure to school and political officials. But it is a grassroots initiative created, conceived, and coordinated by parents, teachers, and students nationwide, not by officials. Not unlike the early development of Negro History Week, the Black Lives Matter at School Week of Action is at heart a do-it-yourself movement, inviting you to take action now. Teach Black history now. Affirm Black students now, regardless of whether or not the demands are met. And now I'll put my moderator hat back on, and we get to spend some time with Denisha and Jesse, learn about their experiences in this movement, how this book came together, and then we'll take questions from the audience at the end. So keep your questions and comments in mind. Denisha Jones is a member of the National Black Lives Matter at School Steering Committee and director of The Art of Teaching, a graduate teacher education program at Sarah Lawrence College. Jesse Hagopian is a member of the National Black Lives Matter at School Steering Committee and teaches ethnic studies at Seattle's Garfield High School. He's an editor for Rethinking Schools magazine and is a co-editor of the book, Teaching for Black Lives. Welcome. 
Hey, thank you, Brian. It's so good to be with you for this celebration. Yeah, thank you so much, Brian and Jeffy. This is just really amazing, and I'm just so excited. We made uh, it's been uh, been preparing and preparing, and we're here. We're here. Uh, so uh, let's start off with uh, some selections that you wanted to read from the book. Thank you. Um, so I have a chapter called the Black Lives Matter at School Pedagogy, and I wanted to read to you a little bit about um, this chapter. And so. Um, I start by saying, all right, at what point I say the Black Lives Matter at School pedagogy affirms Black lives, resists neoliberal reforms, and presents a vision of education for liberation. Affirming Black lives. In a review of the book, Teaching for Black Lives, I suggested that teachers must recognize how traditional approaches to teaching Black history maintain an anti-Blackness and white supremacy. The narratives of the happy and obedient slave the respectable heroes of the civil rights movement mm. and the magical new growth of today, for example, Oprah Winfrey, Michael Jordan and Barack Obama are offered up as examples of good black people and present a monolithic stereotype of black people. The editors of the handbook resist such stereotypes by in their words, quote, not only providing educators with critical perspectives on the role of schools in perpetuating anti-Blackness, but also by offering educators concrete examples of what it looks like to humanize Black people in curriculum, teaching, and policy. In my review of the book, I praise teaching for Black lives as a vital tool for aiding in critical race pedagogy. My only concern was that we need a version of the book geared towards educating young children because most of the lessons portrayed in the book were from middle and high school teachers. We need resources that affirm Black lives in the early years so children can grow up prepared to respond to the historical assault on Black lives in the United States and around the world. Before children learn about the enslavement of Africans, they must learn about Black villages, Black families, and the work of sustaining intergenerational networks. Before children are taught about emancipation and the Civil War, they must learn how restorative justice, empathy, and loving engagement are grounded in the work of those who have fought and continue to fight for Black people to be free. Before children celebrate Dr. King and Rosa Parks, they must learn to respect all Black lives through the principles of trans-affirming, queer-affirming, and collective value. Before children come to know about the African transatlantic slave trade, they must learn how the continent of Africa births the rich diversity that is the global Black family. Before children can recite Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech, they must learn the joys of being unapologetically Black and honoring our Black women. The Black Lives Matter at School pedagogy is grounded in affirmations of Black lives that allow all children, but especially Black children, to develop a love and appreciation for Blackness. The creation of language for discussing the guiding principles for young children and the list of age-appropriate books and activities are examples of how the movement's pedagogy lays the groundwork needed to enact a culturally relevant curriculum in the early years. Yes. Thank you so much, Denisha. Uh, I want to just take a moment and read a little from my opening chapter in the book called Making Black Lives Matter at School. And I begin with a quote from one of the students, Marche Das, who contributes a chapter to this book. And Marche said, how do you make Black Lives Matter in schools when the whole system wasn't even built for us? I'll tell you how. You tear it down and you build it into something that is made for us. And that's what we're doing. Step by step, policy by policy, person by person, we're tearing it down and rebuilding it into a system that is meant to make sure 
that Black Lives Matter at school. And then I wrote, this book is the story of how black how the Black Lives Matter cry for freedom hopped on the yellow bus, walked through the schoolhouse door, occupied the gymnasium, rallied in the auditorium, ripped up the textbooks and took over the daily lesson plan. The Black Lives Matter at school movement is the story of resistance to racist curriculum, educational practices and policies. This is the story of educators, students, parents and community members defying the threats of violent white supremacists as the account of the movement in Seattle will reveal in the pages to come. And the story of an uprising to uproot the racist policies and curriculum that are bound up in the American system of schooling. This is the story of how visionary educators and the caucus of working educators took Seattle's action to a new level by to a week of action and then launched a national movement. This is the story of students in Minneapolis who had begun organizing for years and then in the wake of the horrific murder of George Floyd organized a powerful campaign that resulted in the removal of police from the Minneapolis public schools. This is the story of students in Vermont hoisting a Black Lives Matter flag on the school flagpole. This is the story of Boston teachers union leaders publicly defending their week of action against an attack by the Boston police. This is the story of teachers creating anti-racist lesson plans and wearing shirts that said Black Lives Matter as they led students in discussions to affirm black identity. And this is the story of educator union activists organizing their unions to take up anti-racist anti -racist initiatives. In short, this is the story of bold action against anti-blackness in elementary schools, junior highs, and high schools across the country. Wow. That was powerful. Thank you both for sharing those words. Um, I just want to point out that the book has a foreword by Opal Tometi, who, along with Patrice Con Colors and Alicia Garza in 2013, founded this Black Lives Matter phrase and cry and organizing. And so this is really about how that comes together with schools, as you just described, Jesse. Uh, so what is going on in schools that makes it necessary to have a Black Lives Matter movement come into the school building? What's happening in schools? Yeah. Denisha, you want me to, to start? Yeah, get, you go ahead and get started. Yeah. Well, I think that's so important to ground this in the urgency of the necessity of transforming our schools and uprooting the institutional racism because we are up against a vicious and unmasked white supremacy that is attacking black children in schools increasingly uh, every day. Uh, but it's not just that vicious unmasked white supremacy that's been unleashed in this Trump era that's the problem. Because in addition to the everyday uh, uh, practices um, of white supremacy, there's also just the, the institutionally racist practices that have been happening for a long time. But I want to, so I want to look at both of those problems. And I want to begin by the more open forms of white supremacy that are flourishing right now in schools across the country, because there is a recent story about uh, a huge 
problem in Burlington, Wisconsin, because you might know that in Wisconsin, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, Jacob Blake was shot down in a hail of seven bullets in the back by by the police. And in nearby Burlington, Wisconsin, there was a teacher that thought it appropriate to have a discussion about the mass uprising that's occurring, like actually making education relevant to their students' lives. And so she began discussing the Black Lives Matter movement with her students. And uh, parents started a Facebook page called Parents Against Rogue Teachers. And people called for this teacher to be fired. They called her human garbage. And they called her a thug on this website, but it wasn't just the online vitriol. They, somebody burned the N word into wood chips on the playground at her school and wrote that word on the floor of a new building under construction there. You know, in Seattle, hate crimes have doubled in the last year. And, you know, the the report called Hate at School has shown that hate crimes are rising in our schools and we're seeing more uh, openly white supremacist attacks. But I think we can't let those hide the fact that there has long been institutionally racist practices that have degraded the lives of black children of, of BIPOC youth. For a long time. I mean, you can look at the suspension rates in Seattle. Black students are suspended at four times the rate of white students for the same infractions, right? Uh, and thanks to the work of Monique Morris, we know that black girls are actually the most disproportionately suspended, some six times the rate of uh, white girls nationally. And we also know LGBTQ students are suspended at higher rates, too. And that's why our our movement is really an intersectional movement that looks at how the the different experiences that black students have based on on their identities, that they all face racism, but they also face other forms uh, of oppression as well. And this really manifested for me when I learned about the 15 year old girl in Michigan who was. incarcerated, right? She was taken from her home and put in a youth jail for not doing her homework online during the pandemic, right? This is, and the fact that you don't have to ask what color that girl's skin was is a condemnation of this country and the American schooling system that is abandoning black youth, right? You know that that girl was black. I didn't have to tell you that, right? You can't imagine that happening to a white girl. And, you know, we have the fact that 80% of teachers in this country are white and 26,000 black teachers have been pushed out of the classroom since 2002. And that despite the fact that an American University study found that having just one black teacher in third, fourth or fifth grade uh, can reduce the probability of a student dropping out by almost 40 percent. Right. And just lastly, I would say the priorities of this system are laid bare when you look at the fact that there are 14 million students in this country that go to a school that has a police officer, but doesn't have one of the following, a school counselor, a nurse, 
a, a psychologist or, or a social worker. And that just means, you know, police violence is endemic in our schools. There is the horrific example in New Mexico of last year of a, of a police officer caught on video throwing an 11-year-old girl into a brick wall and wrestling her to the ground, all for the alleged crime of taking an extra carton of milk, right? Just shameful. And I'll just end by saying, I think it, we should, it's painful to even share these stories, but I think that our belief in the value and beauty and joy of black children is stronger than their desire to traumatize and degrade black children. And we are rising. Our side is gain, gaining strength. And I'm so proud to be in this movement with educators all over the country uh, who made this movement and this book possible. Nisha, you said um, earlier in, in your quote that you were wanting from a previous book that there be more focus on the early years. And you really deliver in this book because there there are quite a few contributions talking about trying to bring this movement to the early years. So can you talk about this from that perspective? What's happening in early childhood education and what needs to change in your view? Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've been in early childhood education um, since I got started. I was a kindergarten teacher. And so, you know, I think about how does all these things that Jesse talked about, how do they manifest in the early childhood years? Because a lot of people don't know this. They start with a horrible phenomenon known as preschool suspension and expulsion. Preschool. Preschool, right? I, I wrote about this with my colleague Diane Levin at Defending the Early Years, and we looked at, and, and you can get this data from the Department of Education Civil Rights data, right? Preschool suspension, right? 40 to 50% of Black boys are expended, suspended, expelled from preschool and kindergarten, right? And a lot of this, you got to remember, a lot of preschools are private, right? So they don't even have to like give up this information, right? So you're a four year old boy, you're a five year old Black boy or girl, and you're being told at that age that you are a problem, that you don't belong in a school, that you don't fit in and that you have to go somewhere else, right? So we're kicking them out at that young age. And we're already talking about them in the terms of this racist language of an achievement gap, right? Which is just completely right. We need to just get rid of it, right? The, the gap is manufactured and it's racist to even think that. But so we're starting that at a young age with, with um, lies about this 30 million word gap, right? We, we, so we, we trout that out there so much and it's such, it's so fabricated, right? The study that it was based on was based on white children. <laughs> so they don't even look at other children, right? And they come up with the idea. So we have this from the beginning and it, and we see them as cute, but we see them as deficit, as having a problem, their behavior, the problem, their culture, the problem. Right. And so they come into the school and they're facing this every day as little children. And they're either told to assimilate, to stop being who they are and act like they're someone else because we are norming them against a typical white children. And we're expecting them to fit that norm. When we, we don't expect them to fit that norm. When we, when they do, we celebrate them as a, a you know, a mm. testament to their race. But when we don't, we pass a lot pathologize them and we you know we label them as deficient for not meeting a standard that wasn't met to, to fit them in the first place um and it just follows them throughout and if you're fortunate like me you have dispositions to get through this right you're able to ad adapt i was very adaptable to an all-white school system and found ways to navigate that successfully well it wasn't successfully but that's the price of being black right i wasn't black until i got out of high school and moved to dc and i was like oh wow i'm black and there are black people here right and i was finally able to embrace that and what it meant because to survive where i grew 
up, I couldn't be black, right? I had, or I had to be an exception to being black, right? But if you're not like me and you're like regular black children, you're like, damn this school and damn this nonsense. And and you pull away from it because it, it's violence, committing violence on you. It's spirit murdering you in the words of Bettina Love, right? And so this is what our children are experiencing. And it starts at a young age and they're getting very negative messages about who they are. Um, and it's also impacting our teachers, you know, and how our teachers, our teachers are kind of produced into this, this pipeline where they're, it's the white teachers, they don't know, they grow up in communities where they don't know a lot of black people and people of color. Then they go, and so they're getting all these racist messages and inferiority messages. Then they go to school and become a teacher. And if they're lucky, they take one course that says, treat everyone equal, do a multicultural curriculum and, keep, and, and, and say the right words. And then they become teachers and they reinforce these stereotypes. And then some of them go on to be teacher educators and they prepare teachers to do the same things, right? So it's a pipeline as well there too. And, and we need to interrupt it. And what this work is trying to do is interrupt that pipeline at all levels, right? In the curriculum, in the communities, in the schools, with interactions with um, officials and with the teachers too. Wow. Well um, so I think we all agree that this is uh, part of or a new phase of a long struggle, uh, Black people trying to do this work. But I'm curious to hear how you tell the story now about how this this phase of it came together and came together under the banner of Black Lives Matter and, and taking that slogan and bringing it into the schools. How did this come to be codified and organized the way it is now? It starts in Seattle, right? That's right. That's right. And we write a chapter about it in the book. Uh, Dr. Wayne Al and I wrote a chapter about how this phase of the struggle was really launched. And it's an incredible story. It really started at one elementary school here in Seattle in 2016. And this was a really committed, amazing group of educators at John Muir Elementary School who had built a racial equity team at their school to examine the disproportionate discipline and figure out how to solve that and how to uh, make Black Lives Matter in their school. And uh, they decided to plan an event for that fall uh, starting in September to celebrate Black Lives. And this is right after the horrific murders of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile. And they wanted their youth coming back from that hard summer to know that they were loved and valued at the school. And so they planned an event with a group called Black Men United to change the narrative and um, the PTA and all the educators where they were going to bring black families and everybody who wanted to out front of the school and high five all the kids on the way in to the school that that morning and then have an assembly where they celebrated black history and culture um, that day. And the art teacher, Julie Trout, created a beautiful shirt that said, Black Lives Matter, we stand together, John Muir Elementary School with the picture of the many branches of a tree coming into the one trunk. Um, it's a nice image of solidarity. Well, that image got out to the media and then right-wing websites seized on this and John Muir Elementary School started getting bombarded with nasty emails and letters. And then one particularly hateful person made a bomb threat against elementary school students simply for the audacity 
of those educators to publicly declare that their students' lives have value. And I was so inspired by those educators there and and so heartbroken when the, the school district officially canceled the event and they brought in bomb sniffing dogs that morning to find out if there really was a bomb there. Um, and, you know, great leaders at that school like Deshaun Jackson actually went forward with the event anyway. Um, and, but it was a lot smaller than it would have been because of that threat. And so, you know, Wayne Al's son went to that school and he put me in touch with the educators there. And we brought them to our union caucus uh, meeting of the social equity educators. And we asked, how can we support you? And we came up with an idea to put a resolution forward uh, in our union calling for solidarity for John Muir Elementary. But we knew that if we really th believed in that solidarity, it wouldn't just be a resolution of words that we would actually all put those shirts on ourselves. And so the resolution called for October 19th to be the day that all teachers go to school wearing a shirt that says Black Lives Matter and also called on teachers to teach curriculum about the long black freedom struggle. And so that resolution passed, but then uh, a new terror gripped me that that day would come and only a handful of teachers would wear the shirts. And then that would send a message to our black students too, right? And so we started building a coalition with so many great activists and organizers uh, here in Seattle that have been foundational to this movement. People like Marquita Prinzing, um, John Greenberg, that Rita Green of the NAACP. We got the PTA and Sabrina Burr um, and so many um, youth activists in the Black Student Unions together. And we had press conferences and we got the word out and then the T-shirt orders started coming in. Right. Uh, first, the ones and twos, then the the dozens. And we ended up with over 3000 teachers out of the 5000 teachers in our school district coming to school with the shirts and many teaching lessons about the black freedom struggle, the Black Lives Matter movement. We had an incredible evening rally it was student talent showcase standing room only in a huge hall. And that uh, news footage went national. And then the unimaginable happened. The teachers across the country saw what we had done and began organizing. Rochester had had a day of action for Black Lives Matter that year. Um, and then the teachers in Philly had seen what we had done. And they took the thing to a whole nother level. Instead of a day of action, they organized a whole week of action. They broke down the 13 principles of the Black Lives Matter Global Network into teaching points for each day of the week and really set in motion the framework for a national movement for Black Lives Matter at school. And, and Denisha played a big role in that. So if you could talk about that as well. You're muted. You're muted. 
Sorry. <laughs> um, I remember the day and I actually have a picture of what I saw in my chapter, right? I took a screenshot of it. So I follow the Working Educators Caucus of Philadelphia on Facebook. I, I spoke at one of their conferences when they were doing some racial equity work and, and justice work. And they just dropped this link and it's just like, check out it, check it out. Our Black Lives Matter at School Week of Action Curriculum and Resources. And I was like, wait, what? And it's a Google Doc and they've got everything you need. And they've outlined the principles. And I was like, this is the dopest thing I have ever ever seen. Yeah. I mean, I heard about Seattle, right? I heard what happened there and, you know, but this, it was just amazing. And I was just like, wow. Um, and so that year in 2017, I was part of the planning committee for the Free Mind Free People Conference in Baltimore. And so I, I'm on the, I am on the workshops planning committee. So I reached out to those guys, the Working Educators Caucus, and I, and I messaged them and said, look, you guys need to submit a proposal. It's going to be in Baltimore. It's close enough to Philly. We need you to do a proposal on this whole week of action. And, and they did. And it was amazing. And so a lot of us attended, right? We attended their presentation and um, probably 30, 40 of us and we signed up, right? And so we, and then we were like, we want to do this in our states, right? And at the same time that summer, you know, there were other teachings and events happening around Ferguson. So like Okaikor, who's in our book and a part of our steering committee, she was at a different event. And then word got spread around, right? And everyone heard about it. And then you next thing you know, it's like, I think it's a Sunday because it's always Sundays for teachers. We are on a massive Zoom call and we are now a national organization trying to figure out what comes next. And it was just, it was just great that they, they gave us the blueprint on how to get started. And, you know, we had to shift some things around. They did it around Martin Luther King Day um, to make it more equitable for all these schools across the country. We thought the first week in February is the best way to do this, right? Um, we, we started looking at demands, right? And, and expanding the curriculum and, and bringing in the resources and it was just, you know, we were able to do an, a national event. And, you know, we we had a bunch of planning meetings. And so we're hearing representatives from different cities that first year. Um, and so the first day of the first week of action in February, I am at 6 p.m. I'm at a nail salon in D.C. And on the news, they're talking about Black Lives Matter at school in Prince George's County. I'm like, y'all weren't on the conference call. What happened? Like, I had no idea, right? But they were doing it. A bunch of educators in Prince George's County were doing the week of action. And we didn't even know because, you know, you can you don't need to be a part of us. You can do it. But it was great to see that it was getting widespread. And so we thought we were the only ones doing it. It turned out, no, it was happening. And it was great. Um, and so, yeah, we got to see each year here from all of the different cities and all the work. So the work happens in the local cities and that organize for that week of action particularly, right? I was in DC, Jesse organizes in Seattle. Now I'm organizing with New York City. Um, but we also have a national group where we try and continue to do the work at the national level and promoting and supporting. And so it's been just amazing to see it develop that way. Yeah. And one of the things that's, I think, really uh, compelling and maybe useful for people who are getting started in their own place uh, who maybe are listening or watching right now and thinking about how, how do I get started? Uh, there are a bunch of stories in here of people trying to do just that, trying to start sometimes from nothing, like they're the first one and trying to get people together, trying to have an event and sometimes failing, like sometimes running up against pushback, um, often running against, running up against uh, pushback. One of the one of the kind of patterns you follow here is the work uh, that people are doing inside teacher unions. Can you just talk a little bit about the way in which uh, some teacher unions or activists within teacher unions have been able to get some momentum or headway. 
Yeah, it's, it's been really interesting. I'm not a member of a teacher union, right? Because I work at a university. So I'm, I'm always on the outside with that. But it's it's been really important to, for the teachers to have the support because you say you're going to get pushback, right? Somebody's going to say, what are you talking about? Black Lives Matter. But if your union has endorsed the week of action and you're then you, you have your cover, this is a union endorsed event. I can do this as a member of my union, right? So it was really important from the beginning to get union support. And so the local cities would send a petition for a resolution to endorse the week of action. Right. And so what happened was we, you know, we have two national unions, NEA fully endorsed on the national level. So then all of the affiliates under that under NEA were able to do this work. And we've seen it turn out very different in, in cities and school states where they have NEA. AFT has not endorsed nationally. So now you're trying to get your local to do it and they don't have the protection of the national. Right. And so um, it's been a struggle. And so in the book, you hear from um, Cecily Meyer Cruz and Erica Jones out of out of Los Angeles and their work. Um, I interviewed um, Erica Strauss-Chavaria, who's in Howard County, Maryland, and is working with an NEA. And then I also interviewed Myrie in New York City, right? Because New York City had been on the struggle to get the UFT to endorse. Um, and so it was interesting. I moved to New York City, and I'm trying to understand what's happening, right? I'm in our steering committee meetings, and they keep trying to explain this to me. I can't go to a UFT meeting because I'm not um, I'm not a member, right? And so they're trying to explain. I'm just like, I don't understand. You guys are on the agenda. You you try and get your, your resolution heard, and... And they just pull the, the guy running it, just pulls something out and he doesn't read the resolution. And then they run out of time or they, they mark him out of order. So three years, this is happening. And every year we as the steering committee for New York City are redoing the resolution and we're trying to get it out. And so it was really interesting. Recently, they passed a really weak resolution that wasn't from us. We're like, wait, 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 wait. We've been sending the more caucus within the UFT in, in New York City has been sending out a resolution each year. And then some other teacher, because everyone was really into racial justice after what happened this summer, right, the uprisings in the summer. So she put forth a resolution and they they rushed to pass it. And then we were like, wait, 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 that's not the resolution. And she goes, oh, wait, I didn't know you guys were working on something. Let me work with you. And then this year it finally happened. So we came together after the first meeting and we worked with everybody who had a resolution. And that the last UFT meeting, they you voted to accept the resolution. Three years in the making. And now it, it's like we, you know, teachers in New York come under fire. Last year we had a, one of our kindergarten teachers, um, a New York Post article, a parent complained in her classroom and the New York Post ran an article disparaging her and her work without contacting her or anybody from the organization, right? So we get teachers being attacked, right? But now, but luckily she had a principal who knew what she was doing and, and, and completely supported her. But now it's like the UFT has endorsed this. So this is something that we can do and we can say, no, we, you're a union member, you can get this done. And so it makes such a difference. And we're really excited about the win in New York City. And I mean, we're still hoping that AFT as a national union will endorse this movement because it will make it easier for teachers in those other those cities as well. And I'm, I'm sure, Jesse, I don't know if you want to talk about what happened with Boston and Seattle, but it's, it's been amazing. Yeah, I'll just say briefly that uh, the union movement has been really vital to supporting Black Lives Matter at school um, where we've had success. And like Denisha said, there's also been places where a union has has dragged its feet and tried to, to block this. Um, but the grassroots union movement is the powerful launching pad for this. So we've done joint events with National Educators United, um, and that's been important. The um, the UCOR uh, caucus uh, group has been really important to launching this. And and like I said, the caucus of working educators from Philly was where this really uh, germinated and incredible educators like Ishmael and Chris and Tamara uh, 
you know, in Philly, um, who are all uh, part of union organizing have been vital to this. And then in Boston, uh, you know, President Jessica Tang came under attack by the by the Boston police, quote unquote, union. And, you know, they wanted her to retract her support for the week of action in February for Black Lives Matter at school. And uh, she stood strong and uh, delivered an incredible speech to the school board, which is in the book that people have to read about why she didn't back down. Fabulous. So started with a day of action, then it became a week of action. And now you're talking about a year of purpose. So what is, what is that? What's the year of purpose? Yeah, this year we've launched the year of purpose, right? So uh, we knew we had to build on what had come before. Uh, the day of action served its purpose in Seattle, but Philly took it to the next level with the week. And then this year we knew in the wake of the uprising of millions of people around the country and around the world in the wake of the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, and too many others uh, to name, uh, that we had to take our organizing to the next level. And the week of action was never meant to confine teaching for black lives to a single week, right? It was meant to highlight uh, demands around what had to change structurally in our education system and also to highlight uh, pedagogical teaching points uh, that could help center blackness in the classroom all year. And so this year we've codified that by two big initiatives that are part of the year of purpose. The first and maybe the most important part is five questions. And we actually expand on those five questions and add others in the book. But but certainly starting with five questions that we want all educators to ask themselves about their relationship to anti-racist pedagogy. And we want them to, to ask themselves those questions at the beginning of the school year and check in on those questions all throughout the school year and reflect in groups about their progress towards their goals, right? And, and also parents who are increasingly uh, conscripted into teaching their kids at home during the pandemic, right? And then the second part of the, the year of purpose are the days of action. And we have a day of action every month of the school year now. We had a day of action the first day of school, calling on teachers to answer the reflection questions. We had a day of action in October on George Floyd's birthday, calling for the removal of police in schools and, and funding counselors instead. Uh, we had a day of action in November for uh, for our transgender um, uh, black folks. And tomorrow is the next day of action. And we hope that everyone on this call at, at, on in this meeting and, and far beyond participate in, in the Black Lives Matter at school day of action for black people with disabilities. And we want to highlight the fact that ableism in our country intersects with racism and erases the stories of black people with disabilities, people like Harriet Tubman, right? Her story is told in schools, it's all, but it's always limited. And one of the things that's, that's often left out is the fact that uh, she suffered from epilepsy, right? And that ha she, uh, she called it, um, you know, uh, 
fainting spells, um, but likely was epileptic seizures, right? And so uh, we're highlighting that tomorrow. We hope everyone will join us throughout the year in, in participating in this year of purpose. Fabulous. Denisha, do you want to add anything to that about the year? Um, just that the curriculum committee is working hard to get the resources for tomorrow out. We've been in massive emails today because um, tomorrow is, as Jesse said, International Peoples with Disabilities Day. And so we're uplifting our, our globalism and collective value. Um, and just one other thing that really struck me as to why we were all kind of in our own mind, everyone on the steering committee was like, wow, we got to get this to a year, right? But for me, it was a talk I did with Lelania Garcia, who's a kindergarten teacher in New York City, who wrote our 13 Guiding Principles in Child-Friendly Language, right? Um, which is in the book, and she has a chapter in the book. But one of the things she said to me in one of the talks we did was that these principles are what early childhood teachers want for their students all day, every day throughout the school year. And that's what struck me is why we had to move to this year of purpose, right? We do, we do want, these are values that we want our students to have and knowledge that we want to have. And so, you know, and she's like, I, we do throughout the year in our kindergarten classroom, we start in the beginning of the year, we talk about it and we do it. And the best is when a child is like, that's loving engagement. Oh, oh, that's that's Black Villages right there, right? And these young children will do this if you give them the knowledge. They will recognize it and they will they will take it out. And so I think that's the real impetus for this year is that this has to be ongoing all year work. Are we still going to have a week of action? Hell yeah, it's probably going to be virtual for a lot of people because of COVID, right? But we're still, but the week of action celebrates the demands. It celebrates the, the principles in different ways, right? But we need to do, be doing this work throughout the school year. And so, um, yeah, I'm really excited to see what people are, are doing for the year purpose. And I'll just add one last point is is something that our sister Okaikor always says that we have gone from the day of action to the week of action to the year of purpose, but our goal is to go to a lifetime of practice. Yes, a lifetime of practice. Um, we haven't said yet, but maybe we should, that there's a website where people can find these resources, blacklivesmatteratschool.com. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. So if you want to grab pieces or coloring books or lesson plans or any of the resources that people have put together, uh, you can find them at blacklivesmatteratschool.com and also upcoming events and things like that. Yes. Can I say something really quick about the coloring books? So, um, our, our, so I mentioned Lelania Garcia. Karen Davidson is our fabulous, like she's pretty much our artist. She's doing all the artwork, um, yes. the artwork on Jesse's T-shirt. Did she design this logo or was this I don't, on my shirt? I don't know if she did oh, this. But like, all of our Year of Purpose um, logos and all of that, um, Karen's been working on. And Karen and Lelania wrote the, the coloring books and the activity books using the principles. Um, they have a book out right now with Lilo Publishers, and it's the What We Believe Black Lives Matter at School Principles activity book. So we're really excited to promote their book as well, too. Um, it's great activity. I bought all of my nieces and nephews um, one of the regular copies last year, and now I'm going to get them the really fancy, nice uh, printed copy this year. And so um, it's been really great. And so we do have so we got to contact them to get you you can still get the coloring books and materials but it's not as easily accessible now that it's in a uh with a publisher so i just wanted to point that out but whatever we can put out we do put out in all of the resources that you can find on our website okay well well speaking of publishing let's talk about you know this day of action week of action year of purpose lifetime of practice website resources but now you put it together in a book so can you say something about how the book came together why a book yeah. Um, and how you hope people will use this book. What are your hopes for the book? 
Yeah. So we, we do a webinar at the end. So we meet and we plan and we plan. And then it was, it was at the end of the one year and we were hearing, everybody was reporting out what they did for the week of action. Right. And I remember because February is tough because it snows, right? So Seattle got all this snow and they actually had to postpone some of their week of action events. But as we're sitting there listening, right? We're listening to New York City. We're listening to DC. We're listening to Howard County, Maryland. We're listening to Seattle and to, and to all these places. And it was just like, it was so dope, right? I've seen the calendars, right? I get the calendars because we want to put that information out there when we do webinars. But just hearing people talk about the events that they did, the youth-led events that they do in Howard County, where the youth take over and they do the whole week of action and and, and working with community organizations like Racial Justice Now, right? Um, it just was like, it was shocking. Like, it was, it was just like, this is a lot. And so I was just like, we got to document this. Like, how can we not get this documented? And I just, I emailed Jesse and I was like, Jesse, we need, we, did you hear that? Like, we need to do something. And he's like, you're right. No, we need, we need a book. We need as many people who are part of the movement to, to do this book. And so I think originally the idea was let's do a city by city, right? Like New York city, what do you do? To, and, and, you know, we thought about it that way, but it just didn't, but then we were kind of like, we don't want to limit people. We were just like, look, we sent people this ridiculously long email that said, we want to put this book. We want you in it. Where do you feel you can write in this? What do you want to do? Like some people we thought about it, like Chris Rogers, you should write about curriculum because you've been our leader of the curriculum organizing committee for a very long time. Um, Okaikor works with the Mapso Freedom School, which is a community organizing. So a lot of this is done in the communities, right? When you have issues trying to get this done in the school, we say find a community organization and work with them, right? And so Mapso Freedom School is the organizer for this part of New Jersey that does the work, right? Um, Howard County, Maryland, that I mentioned, has worked with racial justice now. D.C. is working with Teaching for Change and, and the D.C. Area Educators of Social Justice, right? So we wanted that piece to be told. And so we got that and we talked about the unions. And, and so it just it, at the end, we just had all of these different pieces and it really worked because it showed that this work is multifaceted and it comes through different different ways. And so um, we reached out to Haymarket. They said yes. We started tapping all the people we wanted in the book. I remember towards the end there, it was just Jeff is like, we need a chapter on COVID. I'm like, the publisher is going to yell at us if we add one more chapter. They did not. Thank you so much, Dana and Julie, for not yelling. They're like, add another chapter, just get it to us, right? And so, and then the student voices. I mean, Jesse got all of those students interviewed, written in there, and we couldn't have the book without that because as much as the educators are doing this work, one of the things I tell people all the time is that I have access to the Gmail email. Every year we get an email from a student. I'm at a school. I'm one of few black people. They're so racist. How can I bring this to my school? Right. So students are hungry for this and they want this. So hearing their voices and, and what they're doing in their schools, that was really powerful. And like we kept talking about the Vermont and the and the flagpole raising. And Jesse's like, we need to get them. I'm like, Jesse, how are we going to get them? And Jesse's like, I got them. I interviewed her. Done. And I, it was just amazing. Right. That we were able to bring this stuff too. I realized towards the end that um, to keep a bunch Smith is that the, the Bank Street Center for um, Race, Culture and Equity does this amazing early Childhood Symposium two years in a row now. I'm like, she's got to be in this book. So at the last minute, I'm like harassing her for an interview and she gives it and it's amazing and we get her in there. And so it's just was, we just wanted to showcase what this work is all about. Because again, these are teachers and activists and working all the time. Sundays, our lives are taken over with these long meetings or now it's not just confined to Sundays, but it's a lot of extra work. And they're doing it because they recognize that there is power in this and there's privilege in asserting this in this demand for Black Lives to Matter. And so it just it became something that I just felt we needed to share. And so we want people to use it in different ways, right? Use it to organize. I think we just talked about earlier today, we're going to have to do like a, um, a teaching guide, right? A, a guide on how to use it. But I think for me, it's just hearing 
and learning from what other people did and their stories um, so that you can then be inspired by their work to keep doing it. Jesse, before you go, I just want to remind our audience that we're getting close to the time for questions. So if so, now would be a good time to start typing in some questions so we can gather them up and uh, and and address them in a few minutes. So sorry, Jesse, you want oh, to yeah. say something about the book? Well, Denisha nailed it about why this book is important. I'll, I'll only add that I think in this political climate where Trump just launched the 1776 project as a direct attack on uh, the 1619 project, critical race theory. He even named Howard Zinn and the Zinn Education Project. And anything that teaches anti-racism is now under attack. Our movement is uh, more necessary than ever. And and this book really uh, is our offering to parents and students and educators so that they can become more connected to this movement, know where it came from, know our major goals, and and really have an entry point for organizing in their communities. You know, one thing I've been thinking about, and one I've been thinking about the the youth voices that are in here, and 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 the tension between making demands, and then sometimes there's things you can just do on your own without making demands, and. And, and the kind of victories that we get that sometimes feel hollow and like they're not enough, um, but they're not nothing either. And I was really struck by that. You just mentioned it, the, the student who campaigned to get the, the Black Lives Matter flag raised at a Vermont high school yeah. and like and has to go all the way up the chain of command arguing the case like has to argue it to a superintendent like gets pushback at every step of the way uh noelle ryby williams oh, noelle i hope i'm saying your name correctly and i apologize if i'm not um but noelle i was so moved by your words it's so powerful and i hope other young people read them i just wonder if i can read out a short thing this is like the when when they win and they win and like you know raising a flag isn't that's not everything that we need. That's not the redistribution of educational resources that we need, but it's not nothing either. We had a huge turnout. There were people from all over. Montpelier High School, her high school, is right down the street from the state house. So we even had some legislators come. People from all of the three schools in town came, including kids and parents from the middle and elementary school. I remember Jalen gave a really great speech. I read a quote by Martin Luther King Jr. And then we played the song Young, Gifted and Black. It was so emotional. Every student of color was there, whether they were in middle school or elementary school. We're all able to help pull the flag up. So we got in a line and we all pulled it up together. That was really beautiful. Our little brothers were there. And as we tugged at the rope, I started crying. At that moment, I felt like I was doing this for my little brothers. They're black young men. And it's hard to be black in this world, but that day overall was just beautiful. Mm. She had me tearing up when I did the interview. Thank you for reading that, Brian. And yes, it's not everything, but the lessons that Noelle learned from organizing with her peers, making that demand that their lives be publicly declared at the school to have value and to have that flag hoisted out front of the school meant a lot to those students and showed that 
collective organizing can win. And it spread. It wasn't just that school. It spread all through Vermont, right? Once they got the flag up, then every student organizing for social and racial justice brought the fight to their school. And it spread to a whole bunch of schools all over the state and really all over the country because Fox News attacked them, right? And she had and their school had to stand up to those attacks uh, and to the principal's credit, he didn't back down and defended the the students. And, uh, you know, there's now schools in Seattle that raised the Black Lives Matter flag because they had the, the courage to do so and didn't back down in, in the face of those, those attacks. And I really think that the student chapters in this book are the crown jewel of this book. It's it, it's really some incredibly moving stories, but it's not just the the emotion that will grip you reading these stories. It, it's the amazing talent that these youth have for collective organizing and the way they have shown how to win. So look at Marche Doss's chapter. She describes being, quote unquote, randomly selected by a police officer to have to get up in the middle of class and leave the classroom in front of everybody and then have her stuff uh, searched in the hallway. So the cop goes through her bag and he finds a bottle of hand sanitizer. And he says to her, I know what you people do with this. Right. And she says, yeah, right. I, I, I keep my hands clean because this school doesn't have uh, soap in the bathrooms, right? That's why she brought it. And it was that experience that led her to join Students Deserve and be part of a movement to kick the police out. And But their first demand was to stop the, the random searches of youth that were so dehumanizing. And their movement convinced the teachers union that they needed to be part of it. And the teachers union supported their movement and added it to their contract demand. And the brilliant strike that the L.A. teachers led uh, took up that demand and they actually won. And now students are no longer randomly searched. And you can look at the, the, the chapter by Nathaniel in Minneapolis. They you know, he lived a few blocks from where George Floyd was murdered. And he went there uh, hours after he found out about the death and stood there contemplating what he needed to do. And he was the student representative on the school board there. And there are many youth groups fighting to get cops out of schools. And he brought that movement uh, to the school board in a new way and was able to help win uh, a huge victory to get the police out of schools that spread across the country. So the St. Paul schools kicked out the cops. The Oakland schools kicked out the cops. The Seattle public schools have now removed police officers and it's spreading across the country, right? These youth are showing us how to struggle and how to win. And I hope everybody will get the book uh, to read those chapters. And and lastly, my, my student Israel, who was in my ethnic studies classroom, just 
just really warmed my heart, showing the lessons of how to build the week of action. And he, he ended his chapter by saying, BLM at school has showed us that our community can organize and fight and come together and celebrate ourselves and our accomplishments. We are no longer living in a history of defeat. We are living in a future of success. Wow. That's powerful. Um, we are, from what I can tell, getting a lot of great questions. So keep the questions coming. And I'm tempted to say that we should just get started on those questions. Let's hear some of them. Um, so there's a few, I'll, I'll read, I'll just read them out. There's, I'll read two, um, because I think they kind of go together. Uh, one is from Catherine who writes beyond your website, what would you recommend sharing to district level leadership to modify school board policy? So we are allowed to say Black Lives Matter at school. Currently, we are not allowed. Um, and then a similar question from Bailey writes, I'm interested in organizing and pressuring my district to approve the BLM at school curriculum. Where do I start? My union, public comment at a governing board meeting, something else? What are your thoughts? That's another great question. Um, so, Here's what I do when I hear, I forgot, it was in Utah. A, a colleague in Utah email, uh, messaged a bunch of us and said they were going to vote to ban Black Lives Matter at school at this Utah school district. So what I did was go and, you know, the data is old because the Department of Ed under Trump wasn't collecting the data, but the Office of Civil Rights and the Department of Education produces this data from school. So I got like their 2014 data for the district. So I looked at the district and I looked at how many black students in the school and I looked at how many are expelled, how many are suspended, how many are taking gifted classes, all the data is right there. And then I sent this really nice email saying, before, this is why you need Black Lives Matter at school because the black kids at your district don't matter. Your own data shows us that. They are disproportionately suspended, expelled in special education and kept out of gifted and advanced classes. So maybe you should look at those statistics before you think about banning that. And of course, they all responded. We're not really banning it. We weren't going to do that. You have misinformation. Right. But using that data. So why do you need to see Black Lives Matter school? Because the data reveals that they don't. Right. And everyone wants to be data literate and all that. OK, well, then use the data against them. So I would present that to any school district saying, oh, we don't need this. Our school doesn't need this. Right. I also tell teachers, if you can survey your students. Ask your students an anonymous or you can do three questions and you can get a whole bunch of data about students telling you how their black lives do not matter in the school and how they know this for a fact. Right. And present that data to your school board and let them refute that. Right. Just recently, uh, an article in The New York Times, the, the title is you must be crazy. You think I'm going back. Right. And it's one of our one of our steering committee members or Kaikor, her daughter is saying, I'm not going back to them racist schools. I will stay in online schooling forever if I have to. It's pretty much the gist of the story. And when it comes out, what happens on, on Facebook? A bunch of white parents are mad that their district is being attacked this way. And they're saying vile and racist things instead of questioning, hey, to my kids, how are black kids treated in our school? Is this happening? And it was just straight up denial and, and attacks and racism. And even the district put out a statement saying, oh, we don't have a problem. We we do anti-bias stuff. We do. Right. And so it's just all this denial. But if you listen to the kids and you listen to the youth, you have the data that you need to refute that. So, you know, use that information as best you can, I think, is, is really important. Yeah. Yeah. I would just add that I think it's really important to collectively struggle for black students' lives. If you are isolated and on your own, this work is exponentially harder. 
So one place to start is just ask your colleagues at school who wants to do a study group around Black Lives Matter at school book or teaching for black lives or uh, Bettina Love's book. Uh, we want to do more than survive. Right. Find a book that you all can uh, read that talks about uh, organizing against racism in schools and then see who shows up. And you'll have a few educators that that want to read this book with you. And through that work, you can begin to talk about how do we put this into practice? Right. How do we organize our school to celebrate Black Lives Matter at school week and then and then get them to do the year of purpose? And how do we bring that to our school board and demand that they join this national movement? And the book has a lot of resolutions in it. So this is meant to help you organize. So we have union resolutions, resolutions that passed on district and school board levels that you can bring in and say, look, the Seattle Public Schools endorsed Black Lives Matter at school week. Why can't we? My, you know, the union, uh, Chicago Teachers Union uh, is leading the movement for black lives. Uh, why can't our union? Right. And and I think um, using those documents to help you organize will help. I also noticed that uh, Mackay Kellogg's chapter, which is titled Bringing the Team Along, Mackay talks very frankly about feeling like they, they weren't bringing the team along. <laughs> it was like pushing forward and it's like, nobody's showing up, nobody's coming with me. And the need to like bring your colleagues along and figure out how to build uh, a team um, is very useful. Yeah, okay. and I, I got to go speak when I was in DC to her school. And and I think what, you know, I spoke to the teachers and the, and the director to kind of about it. And one of the things the director, of course, is like, what am I gonna do when parents of this ethnic group say, what about us? Say you're right. What you guys need? You guys need a week of action too. But this is the first week of February, and it's for Black Lives, and you can say that, and that's okay. Yeah. But we also need to make sure that our Native students and our Indigenous students are being upheld, and our Latinx students, and our LGBTQ students, and our Asian American and Pacific Islander students, and our Muslim students, right, and our Jewish students, and everyone, right. But that doesn't mean you can't have a week of action where we talk about Black Lives Matter at school, and 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 really addressing that. And so it was really important to you. The teachers do need to to hear this out and to talk through it because they get nervous. Those three words scare the hell out of a lot of people. Black Lives Matter. And you got to take the time to address that really, really well to bring them along. One of the things we haven't talked about yet is the pandemic and the impact of the global pandemic on this work. And I kind of wanted to ask, how is the how is the COVID-19 shutdown uh, changed or affected the landscape? We also have, um, so I'd love to hear you comment on that. We also have a question um, from Natasha, who writes, uh, how do we create change in a remote setting for both educators and students? It feels like our ability to create change is limited under the notion of we're remote. This is the best we can do. Specifically, how can educators prevent the over-policing of our students remotely beyond a personal commitment, but thinking the entire faculty and staff? No, those are great questions. I mean, to begin with the the great challenges of educating in this era of the COVID-19 pandemic, we have to realize that public education faces immense challenges and specifically our black and brown students uh, are disproportionately impacted by this pandemic and its effects on the schools um, because the schools being open isn't uh, 
only a question of academics, right? We know that the schools actually uh, provided food and showers for homeless kids and counseling services and healthcare and more for for our youth. And, And we know that collectively learning is where deep real learning occurs, right? And it's through collaboration and problem solving together in the classroom that that you get breakthroughs and understanding. And so I really lament the the closing of the schools and yet it's not safe to have them open. And and many of our uh, leaders have had to organize to help keep the schools closed to keep teachers and students safe. Um, And so this is a really challenging moment. But we end the book with uh, a section about what it means to teach in this era of COVID-19. And we we, um, highlight the demands from Journey for Justice, one of the most important grassroots educational activism groups in the country. And, you know, their demands for this era are, are critical to understand, right? And, and Black Lives Matter at school endorsed these, right? They're saying, we need to demand that all suspensions end in this era. It, it's outrageous that that girl could be suspended from school for not doing her homework and put in a, in a youth jail, right? So ending all suspensions, no student should be failed. Uh, there should be no failing grades in, a, in an era where students really are being judged on whether they have a strong internet connection, uh, not not their comprehension. And I would go further. I, I think that we should uh, end the grading altogether because I think it's just another way of ranking and sorting our youth. Uh, and it doesn't actually give our kids the best feedback um, that they need to understand uh, the progress that they're making, that we can do written reports that have them understand how they're uh, progressing, that they give much more information than than a a grade. Um, And, you know, this calls for the doubling of special education instructors. um, and, And I think that we should also make a national campaign out of hashtag COVID testing, not standardized testing, right? I hope that we can see how these punitive high stakes standardized tests are being used to deny kids graduation, uh, deny them entries into colleges, um, and really are are degrading, especially our black and brown uh, students. And so we need to fight to have a nurse in every school uh, and and, uh, understand that being an important part of, of education. Yeah, and I'll just add that, you know, I'm fortunate with my New York City educators that they're really interrogating their own practices during this COVID, really using those year purpose questions. One of our uh, restorative justice educators, Martine, has really, he came up, and I, I think we can share this out. He's got um, some looking at the principles and then looking about how you're doing that in your classrooms remotely, right? And really thinking about how to stop policing students. And right, like Jesse said, he doesn't give grades and he tells students all the time, I'm not grading you, right? So you can just engage with me without worrying about the grade. And it takes a while 
while for them to get used to it because they're not used to that, right? Um, but they're doing it, but really thinking about, you know, this whole thing about the camera and, and demanding students take their camera on. It's, you don't understand what's happening, right? Most of us are happen to be by ourselves, but not everyone is, right? And, and so thinking about how we think about and policing them in their work and, and extending grace. What are deadlines during a pandemic? Like, turn, turn in the work. I'll tell you when the latest is I need your work so that I can submit it and meet my deadline, right? Like, but let's not get out of this idea that things have to be done the same way. We can't expect students to just keep going about life the same way without recognizing what's happening. And so the good thing is teachers are doing it. You know, we're still meeting the plan in New York City and, and educators are showing up after, you know, if you're doing hybrid teaching, <laughs> you are more exhausted than you've ever been in your own life. But yet they're coming to meetings monthly to talk about doing the week of action. And so um, it, it's really about just shifting our, our understanding of teaching and learning. And, and a lot of people are trying to do that because if we return to the way schools were before COVID, we failed, right? We have to get some things changed. Um, we have a couple of questions that are in this domain that are about, um, you know, like even if you're well-intentioned, that doesn't mean you're. it's always easy to do this work and to bring it into your classroom and it can be done badly. Um, and Naomi writes, how do you recommend bringing this into schools, but making sure black students and teachers don't feel like all the responsibility is on them? Uh, and Linda writes, uh, can you talk about how to teach about white supremacy in elementary school with black and white students in a way that doesn't harm black students? And Linda continues, I've made some mistakes in my enthusiasm. Yeah, no, I appreciate those those honest questions. Uh, one, I would point people to the chapter in the book uh, by white educators about how white educators go about joining this movement and participating in this movement. And given that 80% of educators in the nation are white, if we are gonna build a movement that truly transforms public education to make Black Lives Matter, then it's going to have to be a multiracial movement that includes uh, teachers of all backgrounds, right? But there's some specific pitfalls, I think, for white educators that they need to look for. And one is charging out ahead and organizing this movement on behalf of black students and teachers rather than with black students and teachers. And I think it's critical for white educators to reach out to their black colleagues and black parents at the schools and ask them what they want the week of action to look like and how could they support them in organizing this this action and not putting it all on black educators to do all the work to organize it but also making sure that you're taking a lead uh, and an understanding of what they want done right and i think that in districts where white teachers have taken that approach there's been really incredible outcomes of mass mobilizations um huge successful events that have changed policy um <clears throat> and implemented uh some of our demands like bringing ethnic studies and black studies to school districts uh replacing zero tolerance with with restorative justice uh, hiring more black teachers and funding counselors, not cops. Yeah. And I, you know, to add to that, um, 
I think it's really important to think about the, the focus on the guiding principles, right? I, I get a lot of people who want to talk about, well, how do I how do I teach racism to young children? Well, why are you doing that, first of all? Full stop. <laughs> the reason why we focus on the 13 guiding principles is because that is the foundation that all children need before we get into this heavy white supremacy, slavery, racism, right? They have to have a better grounding. And you do too as a teacher. You have to appreciate black villages and black families and black women and celebrate these. You have to understand loving engagement and empathy in our communities, right? So start there in elementary school because they're gonna, and, and, and one, they're experiencing white supremacy and they're gonna get to that. But too many of us, and myself included, our only education is about inferiority that we've been placed upon us, right? It's only about our history is, is enslaved people. But I couldn't imagine how different it would have been if my foundation was about loving and affirming Blackness, right? So it's not so much about teaching white supremacy. That's not what this is all about, right? This is about something else. And this is the shift into what I'm calling is, is cultural citizenship education for Black people, these 13 guiding principles, right? So that you are grounded. And so when you get to the hard history and you're learning about all of that stuff, you're already centered in affirming and loving blackness. And so it comes off as like, wow, people actually thought that? Damn, they was crazy, right? And like, because you get that that's not normal, but right? instead you're kind of told, oh, that's just how things were, right? This is how people go, people enslave people. And so you don't really get that foundational knowledge that you need to challenge that. Um, and, and this is why, again, with the year of purpose, we really wanted teachers to think, are they ready for this? In a lot of cities, we do curriculum fairs before the week of action, because you might not be ready for this, right? You might want to come to a curriculum fair, talk to teachers, go over the lesson? What are you comfortable with? This is, we don't want teachers doing this badly because students will know that this is a joke, right? And it's not really worth it. So you don't have to rush in and, and you read your books and you think, oh, I'm going to come in and I'll do stop, step back, right? And, and what can you do and what should you do? And ask your students, let them lead. All the time, students just need space to talk about what they're experiencing without you saying, Oh, I don't think that's what happened. I don't think that's, you're, you're, you're looking at this wrong, right? Are you calling me a racist? Maybe they are. Keep that to yourself and let them get out what they need to get out and say what they need to say, right? You don't always have to have the answers. And so it's, it's, a, it's a process, but you can definitely get there. Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, and that kind of goes to this next question uh, that Canny wrote. Um, how do you get teachers to move beyond the book clubs and the equity training to actually bring what they learn in the classroom. Yeah, well, I think that, and it, it's even bigger than that because it's like, it's not only what they're gonna teach in the classroom, but also are they willing to organize outside of the classroom? Are they willing to go to a union meeting and stand up and put a resolution forward saying that all teachers should be joining the Black Lives Matter at school movement, right? Are they willing to organize a rally uh, for Black Lives Matter at school to demand an end to zero tolerance discipline policies in their school district? Uh, so that is the, the trick, right? It's uh, how you move from the discussion groups to, to the action. And again, I think collective accountability is important. Like the discussion group, like reading the books in isolation is a problem because then you just read it and uh, you might carry some of it out, you might not. But if you could talk about the goal of the discussion group is not to be more edified, but it's actually to carry out these set of goals, right? And this is what we wanna see change in our own pedagogy and what we want to see changing in our school and our school district by the end of the year, 
then you're reading for a purpose, right? And, and then you have to go out and do it. You have to go to the Black Lives Matter at School website and the Zen Education Project website and Rethinking Schools website and find the lessons that will help you teach against racism, right? And, and try it and you might make mistakes and then you have to own that and, uh, and apologize to students, right? And not let that dis- discourage you from continuing. And then you have to go to your union reps at your, your building and say, we want these policies changed. Too many black students are being suspended and expelled from our schools. Uh, and we need to start a racial equity committee, right? These, um, this is the work that has to be done. And thankfully, because there's a national uprising around Black Lives Matter, more people understand that this work is is necessary. And I think this is a great time to jump in and get it done. I, yeah, yeah, and I just, one of the things we do in New York City, you know, you're right. So a lot of the teachers who are doing this work at the steering committee level, we maintain an all black steering committee. And if you read the chapter on white teachers for white lives, you'll see why. Right. One of the white teachers was part of the steering committee and realized that, you know, it, it wasn't working out. Right. The way she was trying to approach it was different. And so we do maintain an all black steering committee. But in the, in the local level, it's teachers and most of the teachers are white and are doing this work. One of the things I saw really exciting in New York City is what they try and do is like was in the beginning, there were a lot of black teachers, but they get burnt out. Right. And but the white teachers don't want to take the lead and run. So they ask the black teachers, what do you want to see happen during the week of action? Get the direction from them. And then they do the work and they don't, you know, and they share in the burden. Right. Because we know that the black teachers are already the ones the black students are going to, that the black families are going to, that are, so they have all this added work. So they, it was really awesome. I mean, we had an event in February that it was just for black, black, I think, BIPOC teachers. Um and it was, you know, it was all, it was in a healing event. It was all these things. And all the white teachers dropped off the food, got all the resources and really made that event happen for them, right? So there are ways to do this work that you're sharing in the work and you're asking, you're taking the lead. That's really important. If you're doing this in organizing, if you're not taking the lead from black people or black organizers, then you're doing this wrong, right? Even if you are in predominantly white schools, right? One of the authors, Jeff Stone in, in Washington State, he reached out to some of the black organizers about the work he's trying to do in the schools and getting their thoughts because his district is very white, but he knew he needed that. And so um, it's a balance, right? But you have to really take that leadership um, from other black people as you do this work. Melissa asks about, and this is really a question about, or I take it to be a question about the pushback and how do you deal with the pushback? Uh, Melissa writes, what advice can you share for addressing families who are uncomfortable with this movement being taught in school? I have great admin backing me, but still have families reaching out due to the perceived political nature. Yeah. Yeah. We get a lot of pushback. I mean, teachers get a get a ton and and it's it's hard. I mean, you got to decide how you run and respond. Like as an organization, we didn't respond to the New York Post article. They didn't contact us. We didn't, you know, so, but when we do get responses, like we as a collective, the National Steering Committee, we responded, right, to the Boston police yeah. attacking the Boston Teachers Union. We responded to the attacks um, against Okaikor and her daughter based on their article in the New York Times, right? So I think pushing back is really important, getting a collective group. So we asked the person who's being attacked, how do you want to respond, right? Two of our, two of our teachers, we found out that they they were in a uh, what's that guy on Fox News? Um, 
uh, one of the crazy, they were in one of his videos, right? About, he was attacking it all, socialist indoctrination. And how would you know? I don't watch him. I wouldn't know, but someone told us. And right, so we go to them and we're like, how do you respond, right? I think for parents, it's really important to remind them that although this may feel uncomfortable for them, it's natural for their children, right? Um, we have early childhood programs doing this work. I was, I last year at the week of action, I went out to Brooklyn early in the morning to a preschool out there to do their Black Lives Matter celebration. And the teacher tells me, the one parent last year told her, you know, we, we picked the kid up after the end of the Black Lives Matter day and we get on the train and her white daughter looks at a black man on a train and she goes, Black Lives Matter. And he's like, thank you. And the mom's shocked and didn't know what to do. And I'm like, you don't have to do anything, right? And so this is what's happening. We have four and five-year-old children, white children, black children, going up to black adults and telling them that they matter, right? So it's uncomfortable for the parents because they don't know how to deal with it, but it's not uncomfortable for their children. The children are singing songs and looking at you like, of course, black people matter. Like, what is the problem? So, so kind of deal with that uncomfortableness in an adult, but this is what your child needs to survive in this new world, right? The world is changing. And if they can grow up and already have this committed to who they are, they're going to be so much better for it. And we're going to change things. And so I, I try and have that conversation with parents, right? It's, I get that you're uncomfortable, but trust me, your child is ready for this. Yeah. Thank, thank you for raising that, Denisha, because I think that when people say, teachers, you can't bring Black Lives Matter into the classroom. What they're missing is that it's already there because students are discussing it, right? The question that's being posed to us educators are, uh, is will the discussion of Black Lives Matter be confined to the playground, the school bus, the hallways, uh, where students are watching these horrific videos of uh, police violence or uh, of their their peers being assaulted by by school resource officers, right? Or will the classroom be a place where you can actually discuss one of the, the biggest social movements in U.S. history, right? And if we can't discuss one of the biggest social movements in U.S. history in the classroom, then it's not really an education, right? Then we're not engaging with, with the world around us. And so, our students are talking about it. It's incumbent upon us to create a safe space to to have this discussion and to get provide some context to the current movement and to place it historically in the long black freedom struggle and to give our students guidance about what has worked to achieve racial justice in the past, what hasn't. Uh, and, and that's really the discussion we're having. And if there's pushback, then the National Black Lives Matter at school uh, will get your back. Mm-hmm. Um, let me just ask one last question as we're running out of time. What gives you hope right now? What's um, what's your what's what's next for this movement? What are you looking forward to? What gives you hope? So um, I'm in my second year at Sarah Lawrence College um, and it's a different institution. And, you know, there's all challenges when you're in a new place. And the other day I got an email from an alum from 2008 who I wouldn't know. And she's telling me her story. She's a Latinx woman, grew up in New York, um, moved to Oregon where it was really, really white. And she has to deal with all of these issues. 
Um, and she went to Sarah Lawrence from grad school. And so, you know, she's used to this progressive philosophy about children, um, but she's really trying to think about her place as a, as a Latinx women, woman working in, in bilingual schools. And she saw the book and saw me and saw that I was at Sarah Lawrence and just sends me this email that's like, way to go, girl, you are doing it. Thank you so much. And it's just like, wow, like you don't know how much you need that, right? And it, it, it's not so much like, it's just, she's just excited that there's a black woman at Sarah Lawrence where she went doing this amazing work there. And so it's those things, right? It's the teachers messaging me and saying, I want to do this. I want to do this. I think we're ready. Tell me what to do. And, and this is what we do on the steering committee. We sit down with you and we, I met with Utah teachers uh, over the summer, right? They want to, we need you in Utah. We are, we are desperate to get teachers in the South and more teachers in the Midwest doing this work, right? So if you're any, if you're in the Southern state and you want to do this, please contact us, right? But we'll show up. We'll, we'll talk with you. We're, we've got an association of school counselors in California that want to do this work, right? That's our role in the steering committee. And so it's just what gives me hope is that so many people want to do this, even if they don't know how, and even if they're going to make mistakes and they're scared and they're worried about the pushback, the desire is there. And that's one thing I can't give you. I can't give you the desire to make Black Lives Matter. You have to come with that. And they're coming with it. And it really excites me. No doubt. I will say that what gives me hope is the fact that our students are becoming the greatest teachers uh, in America. It's incredible to see the fact that the youth have written one of the greatest lesson plans in U.S. history, which was to take to the streets in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Tony McDade and too many others. And they showed us the power of solidarity and that the power of solidarity is stronger than the coercion of the powerful. And they really transformed the political climate in this country, in city after city, and what the Washington Post called the broadest uprising in U.S. history, right? And that's changed what's possible now. And we went from being embattled and isolated to now uh, removing police from schools in cities across the country. Here in Seattle, we've made the first cuts to the police budget ever and are redirecting that money. Uh, it's not nearly enough, uh, but it's the beginning and it was all because of grassroots activist organizing. And what used to be a fringe idea, this idea of abolition is now a mainstream discussion, right? The same way that the abolitionists against slavery were villainized, marginalized, right? They were uh, painted as hopeless romantics or dangerous criminals. Uh, and then the unimaginable uh, actually occurred, right? And, and the same thing is happening uh, today where people, uh, some people can't imagine a world beyond funneling money into prisons and police away from schools. Uh, some people can't imagine a world where we don't beat black children uh, and spend way more on the legal punishment system than on unlocking their futures, right? But there are increasing numbers of people that can imagine a world free uh, of a punitive system of policing and, and locking people up and can't imagine a school system that's about unlocking the potential of all youth and upholding the struggle for black lives. And Bettina Love is one of those 
uh, people that inspires me. And she has a chapter in our book about abolitionist teaching. And she writes, abolitionism is not a social justice trend. It's a way of life defined by commitment to working towards a humanity where no one is disposable. Prisons no longer exist. Being black is not a crime. Teachers have high expectations for black and brown children and joy is seen as foundational of learning. And I, I, I guess I would just end by reading the dedication of our book. We said to the black children of the future who will one day all be taught the epic story of how black people finally got free and who will grow up knowing that their lives matter at school and everywhere else. Wow, thank you. Thank you both for putting this together, putting this book together. Um, and for this conversation, this has been amazing. I am so excited to hear you do this again with more contributors from the book. Um, thank you again to our host and publisher, Haymarket Books, and to our co-sponsor this evening, the Schomburg Center. Please visit blacklivesmatteratschool.com for resources and information. And you can actually purchase this book from haymarketbooks.org and from the Schomburg Center. We have a shop, schombergshop.com. Thanks to Denisha, Jesse, everyone who contributed to this book and everyone who has and is and will contribute to this movement. Stay safe, everyone, and we'll see you soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. And with you. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.